Hello and welcome to Autonomous Cars with Mark Hogue, the number one result on Google for Autonomous Cars podcasts. I'm Mark Hogue, a California licensed attorney, a 2X startup founder, a UCLA Bruin with a background in engineering and an economics degree, and twice a week we'll be discussing the products, tech, law, policy, and societal impacts of autonomous cars as they bring about the greatest step change in humanity since the Industrial Revolution. Today, Tuesday, the 19th of March, 2019, episode 90. A very special episode this because we've got yet another special guest interview. Today, it's none other than Renovo's CEO, Christopher Heiser. So for those of you who may not know Renovo, well, they are a pretty big deal. They've been around for, well, it looks like they're coming up on their nine-year anniversary. They've been around since April 2010. They are, in a few words or less, simply the OS of autonomous cars and, admittedly, much more besides about which I'll obviously let you hear it all from Christopher's mouth himself uh, as we dive into a really fascinating 30-minute discussion with everything they're on about. Uh, so Christopher's coming at us with a pretty fascinating background. Um, he's got his BS in mechanical engineering from Carnegie Mellon University, if that rings a bell. That's because it is back in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, really essentially, by many metrics anyway, by any points of view, the epicenter of all things autonomous car tech, with no fewer than at least five of the largest autonomous car companies being based there, not least of which Uber's Autonomous Vehicle Group. So anyway, uh, we will dive in uh, a nice bit of discussion on one of Christopher's other backgrounds and passions. He is the founder of uh, founding advisor of Self Racing Cars, an autonomous racing series, as he says, that rekindles the spirit of engineering and creativity by challenging competitors to build and race their own autonomous vehicles. This includes little tiny RC-sized cars up to full-size vehicles. And of course, he is the co-founder and CEO of Renovo. You can find them over at Renovo.auto. They build themselves as uh, a Silicon Valley technology company dedicated to accelerating innovation in the automotive market. Uh, without further ado, then, let's dive into this. A one-on-one -on -one interview with Christopher Heiser, the CEO of Renovo. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, Chris. Hey, Mark. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Awesome. So we are on. Uh, why don't we dive into what appears to be a mutual interest, well, besides autonomous cars, obviously, uh, a bit of automotive racing. Uh, you started the <laughs> self-racing cars uh, series. That obviously is very awesome sounding to me. What's that all about? Yeah. So self-racing cars, um, founded by a good friend of mine, Joshua Schachter, and uh, myself and a few others helped him get it started. And the concept around SRC is that competition is one of the ways that technology is developed and, and often um, is developed the fastest. Um, this has been true for the automotive industry, for a lot of other uh, industries as well. 
And what we wanted to see was a way to get people building uh, autonomous vehicles without spending a huge amount of money uh, and with having, let's say, a reasonably defined success criteria. And for racing, that's simple. Uh, first, you win. So <laughs> SRC uh, focuses on a number of different classes, all the way from tiny little uh, one-tenth scale vehicles that are about maybe you know uh, uh, about a foot long, all the way up to full production cars. And uh, we hold at least one event a year. Um, there's one that's coming up uh, this month out in Thunder Hill. And uh, really that's I've actually it. done two track days at Thunder Hill myself. Awesome. Fantastic. Yeah, we, we hold it out on the on the West course, which is the smaller of the two. Okay. And really, the goal here is um, to get people developing autonomous vehicles and testing them out in the real world. And, and a, a big focus here is also trying to keep the price point down. So we've tried to make this accessible to um, hobbyists, to people inside of high schools, certainly colleges and things like that. Um, you know, we don't want this to be something that only people with millions and millions of dollars uh, to use. Um, uh, can't. That's the goal of that. So exactly the opposite of Formula One then. Good. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny. There's, a, there's another um, self-racing uh, category called Robo Race. It's, it's uh, a support race series for Formula E. Oh, yeah. And while I'm fascinated by it, it's super cool. I think each one of the cars just by itself costs a few million dollars. Um, and fielding a race team was going to cost you, you know, I don't know, five, ten million dollars a year. And so it's accessible really only to huge brands and, and big companies. And so we wanted something that was a little more uh, grassroots, um, kind of comes from where motorsports started anyway in the 1930s, 40s and 50s with people that were skilled in working on planes and vehicles and, and could build their own race cars in their own garages or backyards and go racing. And that's um, where some of the greatest uh, racing uh, uh, traditions came from. So we want to see that happen in the autonomous space as well. Well, that's awesome. And while talking about accessibility, I think that segues pretty well into what you guys are doing with Renovo. If I understand correctly, you're sort of building the OS for autonomous cars, as it were, making autonomous cars as a development platform available to all sorts of third-party partners. Is that a good way to sum it up at a high level? That's right. So, so you know, we're, we're students in history. And we've watched uh, other big industries um, really go into a massive scaling phase when you have open platforms that a lot of people can participate and collaborate. Um, that happened with the PC, uh, that happened with cloud, that happened with mobile, uh, that these were uh, you know, industries that when you could allow lots of people to work together to solve hard problems, you had an amazing amount of growth and ultimately a lot of value return to consumers. And so uh, AV is, is one of the hardest problems that yep. we've ever had to face. It combines a lot of things like uh, robotics and sensing and uh, automotive engineering, AI, sort of everything in between um, and all on a, on a, on a very data focused uh, backplane. That's what's necessary to build one of these uh, AVs. And so Renovo is dedicated to um, building the largest and, and most open ecosystem and the best platform for people to build these solutions. And we think that's how we're gonna to get to scale. That's how we're gonna to get to uh, price co uh, competitiveness. Uh, and ultimately uh, what our goal as a company is to see AVs um, get to the largest scale, the highest safety and the lowest cost possible on a global level. And so we think platforms are the best way to achieve that goal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So, so, what, so one of the things I've read about you guys is obviously you've done a lot of work insofar as 
really kind of enabling a platform that facilitates development of systems that benefit um, both the driver, but even, for example, pedestrians on the outside. So as I understand it, you've partnered up with, is it um, AI pod, I believe for speech recognition. So the idea is you wanna make it really easy for the actual occupants of the vehicles to interact with these autonomous cars, uh, as well as say outsiders to the car. Is that, is that accurate? That's right. So, so machine interaction with humans is super important. Right. And a lot of people focus on the self-driving. That's a hard problem. Um, but there are dozens of things that, uh, say, a, a, a Lyft or Uber or Ola driver do today that have nothing to do with driving. Right. Um, they have to do with interacting with the people inside the vehicle as well as outside the vehicle. And so speech is a great way to make that interaction um, natural. And uh, with these, uh, these you know, automated vehicles, they're gonna have to be pretty good at interacting with people on a number of different levels. So we work with companies like Speak With Me, we're working with some other um, larger companies that do uh, voice interactivity. And ultimately what we want is people to feel comfortable and safe getting into a vehicle and asking that vehicle um, to do different things. It could be as simple as rolling down the windows, um, changing the air conditioning, or in some cases, asking the vehicle to slow down or drive more carefully because they feel like the system is, is behaving in a way that makes them uncomfortable. Um, closing the loop, there's another half of that, which is perceiving the humans inside the cabin and outside. Right. And so we're working with uh, companies uh, like Perceptive Automata, Humanizing Autonomy, Affectiva. Um, these are companies that all do different things in looking at what people are doing um, trying to understand how they're feeling. Are they happy? Are they anxious? Are they angry? Uh, and, uh, or, or simply did they leave something behind? Have they fallen asleep? Are they having uh, some sort of a medical problem? These are all things that these AVs will need to be sensitive to, and in some cases, take action. And so um, each one of these is a, almost a separate field of software and AI research. And so what we're trying to do is bring together the largest ecosystem so you have lots of companies that can solve um, each one of these problems. And ultimately, when you integrate that all together, you get a product that's going to be uh, well understood, well accepted by people, and ultimately safer and less expensive than human-driven transportation. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. And it's certainly on point with everything we've been hearing in the news lately. There's obviously a lot of distrust, I think, still with autonomous cars, not least of which perhaps have been perpetuated by what i view, and I think a lot of us view as rather irresponsible terminology, say Tesla's claim of quote unquote, full self-driving capability. I've even tried to argue it away as some sort of linguistic hoop jumping, you know, is it, is it <laughs> able versus capable? Is it some subset, some subset of fully autonomous and so on? Um, I mean, one of the things I've suggested, and I think this goes to your point about trying to get, you know, trying to read and understand the feelings of the occupants in the car, because that, that is a really big deal. I've said a few times that I think once we actually, you know, actually I ran a poll on this, you know, are people more likely to get into a car, an autonomous car, which has still a steering wheel and gas and brake pedals or an autonomous car, which is essentially just a pod with no driver inputs whatsoever. And as I recall, the pretty overwhelming results of that survey were that, yeah, indeed, you'd be more likely to get into something that had no driver inputs at all, because that effectively implies nothing can go wrong ever. <laughs> at least that's the idea right so i mean well we were still obviously a ways from there and i see on obviously on your website you know at least one of your headers is saying you know finally commercializing level four autonomy so to me i interpret that as that is indeed the really big hurdle to get through once you can kind of break through that wall 
then we can get to the point of no driver inputs. That's why you want to be able to read and understand occupants, well, feelings, as it were, right? That's right. So, so for us, um, the way we look at the, at the levels is you're right. The step up from level three to level four is massive. Yep. Um, I, always, I always chuckle when I see a sort of you know, linear ramp of level one, two, three, four, five. Um, that, uh, you know, <laughs> it's not like that at all. Right. Um, and as soon as you take the human out of the loop, meaning that they're not responsible for uh, dealing with the system if there's some sort of a failure, um, that's when it gets really hard. And that's level four. And so the good news for us is that the type of, of uh, companies that are commercializing these AVs, level four is what they need uh, in order to run them, let's say, 18, 24 hours a day in a limited geographic area, in a limited mission. So level four accomplishes that. Level five is kind of a, I don't know, like the shining light on the hill that we'll all be you know, uh, uh, journeying towards. And that's this goal of a vehicle can do anything that a right. human could do anywhere yep. at any time. Mm -hmm. and, and it turns out that level five is actually more relevant for an owned vehicle than it is for an autonomous fleet vehicle. If you own a vehicle, you're going to expect that self-driving system to basically do everything you can. And that means driving coast to coast at night, snowstorms, you know, just everything under the sun. Um, the level four vehicles and the fleets, if they can do the the uh, uh, you know 10 blocks downtown or the uh, college campus or the retirement community or whatever it is that they are, have been trained to do, if they can do that without human interaction, you've got a business. And, and, and it's, it's interesting to point out that the driver that you're removing from that, which is the majority of the cost per mile of, of any um, uh, you know, ride hailing or, or ride sharing system, that driver is just as expensive downtown or in a college campus or in a retirement community. And so people that are trying to commercialize AVs are really looking for those opportunities. And level four is sufficient. Um, that's not to say it's easy. It's still super hard. Um, but you don't need to go to level five to solve those. And those are real business opportunities. There's billions of dollars a year in the U.S. alone in these tightly geofenced, um, you know, reasonably low speed, uh, reasonably uh, simple environments. And if you can get a production system that can be certified to L4 to run in that, um, you can commercialize it and you've got a very, very healthy business. So that's a really good point. Um, as you surely, as you're surely aware, I mean, there's this, you know, so many studies being conducted that an autonomous future essentially presupposes or at least requires a future where we have moved away from private car ownership. Otherwise, this beautiful vision of sort of less traffic, faster you know, uh, velocity of traveling, that, that's just all going to be some impossible dream, right? So we have to move to a car sharing future. Um, and so to that point, yeah, so, so focusing on level four makes a lot of sense. But also, I've said a few times that, you know, why, am, why not embrace geofencing? I, I sort of felt that in some, some ways people would read about some new autonomous car startup, uh, you know, it only works in a certain little, little geofenced area. But when you think about it, I mean, overhead electric buses are effectively geofence. Nobody ever looked at those and said, oh, wow, that's such a limiting thing. So why not embrace it as kind of a liberating thing and say, hey, yeah, it is geofenced, but guess what? It works perfectly all the time. That seems to yeah. be a much more t uh, tenable and frankly, as you say, a much more practically useful goal. So why not just focus on that? And level five will come in due time. There's no rush, as it were. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I, and I think, um, you know, the people that talk about level five are generally people that are selling cars because they need that to deliver a product that works the way that a car owner might expect it to work. 
Um, but for people, let's say, that are just using ride hailing today in Manhattan or, or San Francisco um, or, or the suburbs, they don't ask where that car can and can't go as right. long as they can punch in their destination and the system says yes. That's great. And it was really interesting about ride hailing is that people are willing to use ride hailing at about $2.50 a mile, which is significantly more expensive than owning a car, yep. but they're willing to do it because of its convenience yep. um, and because of the ability for them to get mobility whenever they want it. Um, as I mentioned before, the, most of the cost of that 250 is the human driver. So what's going to make it easy for people to accept geofenced AVs is they're just going to be so much cheaper than anything else. And when you want to go from point A to point B, um, it will be cheaper than an Uber. It will be cheaper than a taxi. It will be cheaper than owning a car. And that's really going to be a tipping point. Oh, yeah. um, and, and you will find people that are willing to live with the geofence limitations because let's say 80, 90% of their uh, destinations or the travel happens inside that geofence. And for the other 10%, either they have a car or more likely they're going to rent a car, you know, some sort of fractional ownership. There's lots of models that are going to take over for that 10%. 90% of the, of the travel inside of a city is under three miles. And so that type of commuting, that type of movement is going to be perfectly delivered by these geofenced AVs. Yeah, that's a good point. Also, let's face it. If you look at the, the, uh, the car pooling option offered by, say, Uber and Lyft, in a sense, that's kind of geofenced, isn't it? Because effectively, you have to walk to the carpool pickup location, right? So that's not technically going exactly where you are all the time. And people are certainly fine with that. They're fine with it. And it's growing, right? You're seeing yeah. a lot of people using that. And, and why? Because it's cheaper, yeah, right? And so exactly. I think this is the thing that, that, that people talk about AV from a technological point of view or from a safety point of view, I think those are both interesting, but the one that's most interesting to all of us is the economic one. And right. there's no way to get cheaper transportation in, in a, in a sort of, you know, a, a single vehicle, not, you know, in a, in a, a mode of transportation that's similar to owning a car. There's no cheaper way to do it than, than an autonomous shared vehicle. And so that's what everyone is putting their time into. Um, you're starting to see car companies design vehicles around this, um, Another big advantage of these vehicles is you don't have to have a battery that goes 300 miles because you're in the geofence. So you can charge the thing once every four or six hours. And because of the peaky nature of travel in, in um, urban, suburban areas, you can charge the thing, uh, you know, in the early morning, you can charge it at noon, you can charge it at night. And so you don't need a huge battery. And that means the cost and the efficiency of these cars are actually better than owned ones as well. So there's just so many things that happen when you start thinking about transportation as, an, as a service. Um, and building vehicles around that. Yep, absolutely. So, so let's then dive into some more of the uh, work you guys are doing. I mean, I see there's a lot to be uh, that a lot have been reading here on uh, data. Um, it looks like you're basically getting all sorts of great sensor data. I mean, at least at a high level, um, are you able to kind of explain to me? I guess compare and contrast. Really, I'm seeing a lot of similarities to at least two other companies that I've learned quite a bit about. One is let's see, RideOS. One is Here Technologies. Um, at least with respect to um, being a sort of a full sort of software stack, I think I'm seeing similarities to Ride OS as far as data goes. I'm seeing some to here technologies. Is there any, first of all, is that a somewhat fair comparison? And if so, or if not, um, is there any sort of play with respect to data, crowdsourcing this data, maybe sharing it with municipalities, uh, that sort of thing? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, so I think the first thing to recognize, and I think you kind of alluded to it, is that um, this entire system runs on data. You use data to calibrate it. You use data to train it. You use data to verify it. Um, you use data to uh, operate it efficiently, um, and you use data to monetize it. And so data is at the kind of core of, of, of the AV world. And so where, where Renovo is, has a huge advantage is that we, we've been operating for about nine years now, building the most high-performance, reliable um, data system for AVs. And so, um, so we have a lot of experience here. We also, in our vehicle systems, have, have been able to demonstrate uh, our ability to move massive amounts of data from multiple vehicles um, to the locations where developers and, and other parties need to get access to it. And, and by a lot of data, we're talking um, terabytes of data per hour per vehicle. Wow. So just as, as a thought of experiment, uh, a fleet of 2,000 of our vehicles produces more data per day than Facebook. And so the data challenge here is massive. Um, with, with respect to companies like uh, here and, and RideOS, here, here's a partner of ours. Um, we know the RideOS guys as well. Um, there's a lot of different applications and different pieces that need to make these things work. And, and you'll find Renovo partnering with almost everyone in the space that has good technology. Yep. Um, where I think Renovo excels is that we run our software on the vehicle itself, all of the data, 100% of the data on these vehicles moves through our, um, our back end. We orchestrate the data off the vehicles, and we're doing this for, um, you know, for our internal fleet as well as our customers. And so typically uh, other companies are data consumers from our back end. Um, we think of us as just the, the backplane or the, or the switching fabric for these vehicle networks. We're trying to move the bytes and bits to where they need to be. And we provide open APIs so that anyone can access that data. So um, I think you'll see us in, in um, multilateral partnerships with companies that are either building, um, you know, uh, 3D mapping and, and uh, location-aware services like here or uh, best practice data routing systems like RideOS um, and dozens of others. Um, we're really a platform that those guys can use to supercharge their business model. So now you literally touched on my next question with respect to the data. So you, know, you said uh, terabytes per vehicle per hour, but this is all based on the vehicle. So nothing is, can, can you just explain what that means? So like nothing is being offloaded cloud-based at all. Everything is going to be uh, like, there's no sort of connectivity at all. It's all physically on the vehicle only. Yeah, it's a good question. So, so right now- I wanted to tie this into a 5G question down the road in a moment. Yeah, yeah. So basically we have an infrastructure issue here. Um, we have, uh, you know, wireless networks that, number one, are really designed for delivering data to the edge, not absorbing it from the edge. Right. Um, so the, the, the networks we've built are, are kind of asymmetrical with a download model. That's one of the challenges. But the second one is just an, an order of magnitude that, that even a 5G connection is about a thousand times too slow to upload all of the data that comes off of one vehicle. And I don't think even if you could upload it, that that would be financially viable. Mm -hmm. And similarly, 
if you take the raw data set and you store it in the cloud, the cost of that is massive. Sure. You know, that, that, uh, uh, and, and, and unsustainable. And so what you need is an orchestration system that looks at the data as soon as it's generated right on the vehicle and already begins to prioritize and, and, um, and sift through that data. Yeah, couldn't you just send exactly. only that data, which is new and updated? I'm thinking of like an MPEG analogy here. <laughs> the, the, yeah, and so that's exactly right. And so okay. when you have full control over that data, and you can understand it and you can uh, tag it and prioritize it. That allows you to then take the absolute critical data that yeah. has to be sent immediately, send that over 5G. Um, and then the data that still has value but isn't immediately uh, required you then move that to an edge context. And then you have applications at the edge. And by the edge, I mean um, large computing and storage devices that sit at the uh, garages where these vehicles go to recharge. You offload that data and you're gonna process it locally. And you're gonna process it locally because the raw data set is, is too large to move up to the cloud. It would take too long. The data links aren't large enough. Even a hundred gigabit uh, optical link is about a hundred times too small to absorb the data from a handful of vehicles. So you have to process a lot of the data at the edge. Once you've then refined that data down to something that is small enough to be moved to the cloud, then you upload it. So think of it as just a refinement process that starts the moment the vehicle senses something and you have a multi-path orchestration of data from that vehicle to the edge, to the cloud. And this is happening continuously 24 hours a day. So this is a really interesting problem and one that, that we've been lucky enough to be working on for years now um, and is absolutely fundamental to operating these networks. If you can't move this data efficiently, you will not have the best network. You will not have a safe network of vehicles. You will not have a basically an, an economically viable. Uh, so it is an absolutely critical piece of infrastructure um, that we can provide to our customers. So this is really neat. I'm just sort of thinking out loud here, kind of processing everything you said. So, so okay. So the really important critical bits of data that are accumulated, those can and will be submitted over a wireless network, presumably 5G down the road. Uh, everything else obviously will be done physically once back docked at home, so to speak, in the garage. Um, so that makes sense. Um, but it's interesting to me also, I mean, I hear you on the amount of data and why it's just too much to go wirelessly anyway. But I feel like at least colloquially, one of the big sort of selling points we've been hearing for what years now uh, about 5G is that rather more important than its data speed is rather gonna be its latency. Um, the, the issue being that you need super, super low latency um, for, for things like autonomous cars. Uh, but the big concern there is of course, the range of 5G is obviously gonna be much shorter. We can't even blanket the entire country with no dead zones with 4G. How are we ever gonna do this with 5G? Yeah, so I think this is where geofencing really comes back into oh, yeah, the picture. Of course, good um, point. That that, and you're right, that uh, latency in 5G is a lot better than, than 4G networks. And in fact, it, you know, one of the requirements that a lot of the fleets that are launching out there is they want these vehicles to be able to be teleoperated, you know, having a human right. potentially yes, take over operation of a vehicle in the very unlikely circumstance that something goes wrong, the vehicle will stop, and then a human driver could pilot that vehicle remotely to a safe zone or maybe to its destination that right, basically it, uh, drone vehicles service um, 5g has low enough latency to drive teleoperation which is exciting because then you don't have to use dedicated rf yep. or some other type of overlay network um, so we like it for that 
Uh, but whether you're using it in the sort of in real control, teleoperation, or data, if you've got a geofence, it allows you to provision 5G um, and make sure you have the coverage. And I think another point is because that geofence will be generating revenue, a lot of revenue, that's going to help defray the cost or, or let's just say convince the wireless companies to put the 5G where it's needed. So we actually think 5G and AV do have a symbiotic relationship. Um, the challenge is that it just doesn't solve the entire data problem, but it does add new capabilities that will make the systems better, faster, more reliable, and, and ultimately more cost-effective. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned something about the revenue there. Can you explain the geofencing and the revenue play? Well, if you look at something like a, uh, you know, let's say 100 vehicles that are running, and let's say you're getting a dollar uh, mile, and they're running, you know, an average of 20, 25 miles an hour, and you're running them 14, 16 hours a day, you might have an area, uh, you know, roughly, you know, four, eight square miles that's generating $50 million a year in top line gotcha. revenue. Sure. So those types of deployments, that's going to allow those people to go to the wireless carriers and saying, I need 5G coverage 100% within this two square mile area. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm willing to pay you on a business model that makes sense for you. And I think this is where the, you know, we, we, we partner with, with a number of different wireless carriers. Um, they're very excited about this because for them, building uh, enterprise-based business models, B2B business models, um, gives them revenue predictability. It gives them you know, the, the, the um, confidence to invest. And the 5G networks, I'm sure you, you read as much as, as I do on this, are just wildly expensive to deploy. And so these are the types of wildly successful businesses that are a good fit for 5G. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So in the five-ish minutes we have left here, um, let's talk briefly about privacy and I guess kind of policy generally around all this. It seems to be a pretty chaotic space. Um, I guess from a privacy point of view, kind of a two-part question, I guess. From a privacy point of view, uh, obviously, um, if indeed these are shared vehicles, I guess it's arguably less of an issue than if it were for privately owned vehicles. But even so, I imagine there's a lot to consider with respect to kind of properly informing folks what is in fact being shared and to what degree and how and with whom and, and so on. And with respect to policy, um, not least of which, because all the various states are free to kind of do what they want now. I mean, one of the things I've suggested for quite some time is that eventually, hopefully sooner rather than later, we're going to have a real need for effectively an FAVA, a Federal Autonomous Vehicle Administration, that would kind of help manage and indeed regulate kind of all these different elements, all these aspects. Um, what do you think of either or both of those rather loaded questions <laughs> or issues? Yeah. So, so I think one of the things that we really fundamentally believe in is that there is a race on to get to a minimum viable product for AVs. Um, and Mark Rosekind, who's, who's at Zooks now, has, has a great phrase that I like to borrow, which is, um, what we're really trying to get to is minimum viable safe product yeah, with sure. a real focus on safety. And one of the weird things that's going on that we, we kind of dislike and push back against is that people are now competing on safety and they're, they're, they're building these huge data troves um, that are trying to help them, each individual company, close the safety gap. And the problem here is that when a company doesn't do it safely, it's not limited to that company. It's, it's the entire industry that pays uh, the, the penalty for people failing out in the field. And so um, we would like to see a lot more data sharing. We'd like to see data sharing, in fact, um, in, let's say encouraged. 
uh, by the uh, by the areas that that regulate them. And so, um, and and we you know it's not lost on us that managing that data is a big challenge. It's an area we have a lot of expertise. So, but I think the the critical point that we want to say is the sooner we get to sharing data, particularly when it will help us avoid um, accidents and injuries from AVs, the faster we're going to get to a mature market with, with healthy competition and, and a product that people accept and trust. And so I think um, to kind of answer that second question, I would love to see um, groups step in and begin to either, you know, with, with um, incentives or, or with, with, uh, you know, with disincentives to push people <laughs> to share more data. I think that would be extremely positive for the, for the entire industry. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. Armor all, less work, more clean. Terms apply. So um, this just triggered a memory I had, uh, and I just Google it right now. Um, Scale.ai, isn't that essentially what they were all, or are all about? Isn't that what they're doing? They're trying to kind of collect and then kind of make available to all the autonomous vehicle companies all their data. Yeah, I think there's a number of companies, Scale's one of them, that, that is, has been willing to and is, is pushing for sharing of data. And I mm-hmm. think that's a, that's a very positive thing. Um, I think that, that the opportunity for the, um, the sanctioning and regulatory bodies is um, as we start to test more and more on public roads, it would be great if, if testing on public roads also came with an obligation to share back some of that data. Um, we have this today in mature markets, um, like in, in air travel, where if there are incidents, right. um, that data is shared amongst all of the manufacturers in an effort to build a safer, um, uh, you know, air travel industry. Um, that's that's something we need to have in AV, and we should have as soon as possible. So I think we're we're uh, we are hopeful that um, data portability and data sharing will happen naturally, and people will just decide to to do it um, either because they find a business model that works or because they want to see the, the industry um, succeed, but um, having some, some push from the outside wouldn't be a bad thing. Well, that makes sense. As an aviation fanatic, I certainly get your point there on sharing data with, with everyone. That, that's totally agreed. Um, all right, well, cool. Well, I guess um, to wrap it up then, so where do we see things? Uh, what's your timeline for all this? Uh, where do you th- see things, say, five years out? 2024, 2025-ish, uh, are, we, are we on track? <laughs> Yeah, so so I think I think things are looking good for the geofence rollouts. We're one of our uh, partners, Voyage. Um, you know, we're already operating vehicles in multiple locations in the U.S. Um, you know, you're going to see those more and more with with uh, civilians, with with just kind of um, you know uh, uh, riders that either through an app or some other way of accessing it are going to use it. So I think you'll see more and more of those happen. Um, and again, it'll be these initially low low speed geofenced rollouts. I think that's on track. Um, I think that that where it's still not clear to, to us is, um, do we have some sort of regulatory oversight? And does that regulatory oversight make it easier or harder for us to do responsible and safe deployments? I think that's, that's a wild card that, that we can't predict. Um, I think what you won't see in 2024 are, are level five vehicles, you know, driving coast to coast. And I right. think anyone that is 
that is predicting that um, that's really flying in the face of physics and a lot of other realities um, that would hold us back from achieving something. Um, but that said, the investment in the space is still strong. There's a lot of competition. Um, people are, are continuing to innovate, um, whether it be on the sensors or the algorithms or the hardware systems. Um, and, and things that used to be monopolies are starting to get broken up. That's awesome. And so I think um, I, I see only acceleration from the marketplace. But again, if you're trying to figure out, you know, when is it going to happen? It's really a question of where it's going to happen. And it's going to happen in these in these geofenced areas. And this is something that hopefully through your podcast, um, you can start to highlight where these things are rolling out, encourage people to go and experience them, because we've definitely found the same thing as you, that as people experience them more, they become more savvy. They also become more excited and more accepting of the technology and also able to tell the difference between something that is realistic and something that's just a, a pipe dream. Understood. Agreed. Well, Christopher Eiser, CEO of Renovo, thank you so much for uh, being here today. It's been awesome. Really appreciate you taking the time. Wish you guys all the best. Yeah, likewise, Mark. Thanks for the time and uh, uh, looking forward to hear more awesome stuff on your podcast. Awesome. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers. All right. Well, that's a wrap for today. A huge thanks again to Christopher for joining me on the podcast. A uh, real pleasure and honor to have you with us. Thanks so much indeed. And uh, coming at you next time on Friday, we're going to have yet another special guest. Just follow me on Twitter at Autonomous Hogue, and you'll hear all about it. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful rest of the week. See you on Friday. Bye-bye.